So each week, um, in a way, we revisit the same basic instructions with a slightly different angle. Week four, the slightly different angle is to have a real interest in what gets in the way of being mindful. So instead of, and it's so easy to have a negative attitude about what gets in the way. But remember, mindfulness doesn't really care what we're being aware of. It's like if you have a flashlight, we can get really interested or obsessed even with what we're seeing with the light. But with mindfulness, we're interested in the mindfulness itself. The object, like being aware of the in-breath, being aware of the out-breath, being aware of hearing, being aware of sitting, being aware of moving, you know, for walking, talking. But in a way, the, the whole path of being aware of objects is a stepping stone to being aware of the mind itself. So normally our attention, like the light of a flashlight, is shining out there, shining on sounds that we're hearing or sights that we're seeing or thoughts that we're thinking or sensations that we're feeling in the body. And that's good. It really stabilizes us to um, clearly, in a relaxed, non-judging way, connect with the different objects that we experience through the five sense gates and through thinking. But ultimately... As we get more grounded, more relaxed, more clear, that being grounded, being relaxed, being clear, it allows the mind to understand or see something about the mind itself, the nature of the mind itself. So we're interested in the light, in the knowing. So this has a lot, this teaches us a lot about how to work with difficulties generally in life and then specifically difficulties in meditation practice. Because when we're sitting and we have this idea that I should be aware of the in-breath, aware of the out-breath in a continuous way, and it's true, that's the instruction, that we keep getting pulled back into some content, you know, something difficult that happened today, and then our reactivity, the emotions around that memory. And we can think, well, that's a problem. But remember, the objects don't really matter so much. Any object, in a way, will do for an object of meditation or an object of mindfulness. Right? So we can be mindful of the next in-breath, or we can be mindful of the next emotion, or we can be mindful of the next so-called distracting thought or distracting sound or pain in the body, or pleasantness in the body. So what we're interested in is mindfulness and the continuity of that mindful awareness, that simple, clear, alert, relaxed presence. And, you know, I've been emphasizing, just to keep it simple, alertness and relaxation. So a relaxed and alert awareness. Another word for relax is non-judging, non-reacting. So an awareness that can let the object be. But not that we're dull or disconnected. So we're alert means we're intimate. 
really present, vividly present, but relaxed, not judging, not manipulating, allowing, whatever the object is, whether it's a thought that's being known, sensation being known, just allowing it to be. So then, in terms of working with difficulties in meditation practice, the first step, of course, is to be aware that the mind is struggling with the practice. So we're sitting there in our practice, and then it occurs to us, oh, this doesn't feel good. This doesn't feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Before you rush off into something you think you should be doing, be mindful of that experience of being lost, or that experience of feeling you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. Just take a moment and see if the mind or the heart can include this object. Oh, knowing this experience as it is, is like this. And each time we do that, we're discovering something about mindfulness. Mindfulness doesn't care what's being known. Mindfulness, like a flashlight, it's completely, it, it's completely free to illuminate anything. We could illuminate dog shit on the sidewalk. It can illuminate a beautiful work of art. It can illuminate anything. And mindfulness is that same way. The mind, the essential mind or heart, is able to recognize, to open, to see, to know, whatever it is that's happening. It could be a very painful emotion. It could be a very beautiful emotion could be a very silly thought, could be a very profound thought, could be pain in the knee, could be a wonderful lightness in the body. But whatever it is, mindfulness, what we want to realize is how mindfulness is always there. It's actually our true refuge. It's really our best friend. Better than any friend, any relative, better than any kind of security is our, uh, this great refuge of mindfulness. It's always there, isn't it? It's like uh, all we have to do in a moment is stop being fixated or <coughs> lost in thought, and mindfulness is just there. You know, like we could be, in a sense, a million miles away, lost in thought about something that happened long ago or some fantasy about what we want to do in life, and then something, you know, stuns us or shocks us out of our distraction. And immediately, what it, there's that simple presence. Oh, I'm just sitting here. We could be reading an intoxicating novel, you know, completely immersed in that world. And then, you know, we look up. And mindfulness is just there to meet the next moment. Can we stop it like that simple clear, non-judging presence. I mean, we could distract ourselves from it, but can you shut it off? This is what Buddhists or the Buddha is pointing to when he's talking about mindfulness or awareness as a great refuge. So there we are in the very difficult times in our lives where there's really nothing for us to do. Our our lover, our good friend is dying, a parent is dying, we ourselves are dying, or sick, losing a job, or just awareness of the confusion of our life, of the world itself. 
But in the midst of all of this up and down, something doesn't change. That's the refuge. There's a great teaching story. I'm not sure where it originally started. Not probably from the time of the Buddha, but includes the Buddha. But it's just a, a fun story about a farmer finding or connecting with the Buddha. I don't think I told you this story yet. And the farmer goes to the Buddha after traveling a ways and says, you know, it's not easy being a farmer. I work hard, and no matter how hard I work, I'm still uh, sort of at the mercy of weather. Sometimes it's great weather, and the crops do well. Sometimes it's bad weather. And, and by the way, it's not easy being married, you know. Sometimes my partner, you know, I love this person, him or her. Sometimes I don't. And the kids, you know. And on and on like this, just talking about how difficult it is being a human being. And the Buddha, in his infinite wisdom, says, well, everybody has 83 problems. And even if I could somehow solve one of your problems, you just get another problem. That's just how it is. And you can imagine this really frustrated the farmer. What do you mean everybody has 83 problems? I traveled all this way to see you. I heard you had all the answers. And you just say everybody has 83 problems? And the Buddha said, well, it's actually true. You know, being human being means you bump up against these things, and there's really not much you can do about it. And the guy was about to walk off, and the Buddha said to him, you know, I can't really help you with your 83 problems, but I can help you with your 84th problem. And so the farmer said, well, what's my 84th problem? Can you get those of you who haven't heard this story, can you guess what his 84th problem is? <laughs> He doesn't like having 83 problems. <laughs> and so that's really where the teachings are focused. It's, it's this, this feeling like when we have pain in the body, like we're sitting in meditation, we have pain in the body, or we have a difficult memory, or there's an intoxicating fantasy about something that might happen or should happen, or whatever it is that's distracting the mind. By definition, really, a distraction is some experience arising where we feel compelled to address it. Like it's demanding, it deserves some kind of reaction, some action of the mind-body, right? That's what a distraction is. And the practice is understanding that when we have a strong desire, doesn't mean we need to gratify it. Think about how many strong desires we've had. Imagine if you try, attempted to actually gratify all those desires. We'd all be in jail, probably, or, or in deep trouble one way or another. And the interesting thing, like with what mindfulness teaches us about anger and desire, craving, is that we can really crave something. And in the, in the heat of that craving, it can feel like, you know, I will not feel free until I get what I want. But the fact of the matter is, if we just are aware of that craving long enough, we'll see that it sort of blossoms and becomes intense. And then it goes away without us having to gratify it. Many, many things we desired strongly, but we haven't gotten them, and we're over it. And the same thing with hatred. When we're feeling a lot of hatred, we want revenge, or we want to, want to kick something, or you know, do something. But we can be present with the anger. It arises, it lasts for a while, rears its ugly head, 
storms around, but it ceases on its own without anybody having to act it out. But that's not the story that anger or craving tells us. In the middle of it, it's basically saying to us one way or another, you better do something or this anger or this craving is going to eat you up. If you don't do something, you know, and this yucky feeling of being angry or being full of craving, it's not going to go away until you do something about it. But that's not true. It's just not true. And we all, if we reflected clear, uh, clearly enough, we'd realize that that's just not true. Craving goes away without gratification. Anger goes away without acting it out. And that opens up a powerful possibility for us, like a completely different relationship with greed and aversion, which are so predominant in our mind. And that's a lot of what we're learning in the sitting practice. Because in mild ways, hopefully, if we're lucky, in mild ways, because we're in a safe environment when we're sitting here or at home, we're picking an amount of time that the body and mind can tolerate, you know, initially maybe 15, 20, 30 minutes, then when we get some momentum a little longer, 45, 60 minutes, maybe longer sometimes when we have feeling really like we have some momentum. And there we are in our sitting practice. And just in that relatively protected environment of formal sitting, we're still going to be irritable, irritated rather, by things. We're still, craving will still arise, like the craving for the sit to end or the craving for a nice experience of calmness, craving for something that we're imagining. But there, you know, we're more likely to remember that we have this other option. Instead of acting out the greed, now in our sit, the way we normally, if we're you know, at least willing to stay put in our sit, the way we act out our greed and aversion is by thinking about it. Instead of you know, getting up and calling that person or you know, doing something about it. But still, that's acting it out, proliferating, spinning, the mind spinning with aversion or with greed is the acting out. But we have this other option, which is to notice that this craving is arising. Oh, it's just craving. And if you haven't yet, sometimes practice that simple noting or naming. Just name it. It's like in the olden days when they found out the name of the dragon, that people got power over the dragon. Right? And it's the same thing. When we know what's moving in the mind, it gives the mind a lot of power. When we say, oh, it's just judging, just comparing mind. Just worry mind, just craving mind, just anger mind. Oh, it's just that. Just envy, just worry. It, it brings a, a kind of clarity. And you see how it really takes the self out of the particular distraction. Because normally when we're angry, it feels like I'm angry. But the moment we understand, oh, there's anger in the mind, you see how it shifts it? Anger is being known. And that's actually a really skillful way to note it, if you want to do more than just a single word. When, you're, when you feel caught, then maybe use that whole phrase, blank is being known. And if you, don't, if you can't quite pinpoint what it is that's happening, moving in the mind, then just say thinking is being known. Reacting is being known. Because the idea is to see it as an object. 
Because seeing something as an object really highlights the fact that there's a subject. Now, ultimately in practice, we're even going beyond the idea of a subject. But initially, breaking that apart, becoming the witness or the observer, is really good. Eventually, we realize the observer is not much of anything. But initially, we sort of take that as somewhat of a stance. Oh, blank is being known. It begs the question, well, known by what? And this is the, the real mystery of awareness. You can't really point to knowing or awareness. You can point to what's being known, what we're aware of. But the awareness itself is a little bit like light. You know, we can't see light. We can see light being reflected off of objects. You know, I look at somebody and I see them. But the light that allows that reflection is a mystery, really, even to physicists. You know, is it a particle? Is it a wave? Light is a mystery. And it's a very similar to awareness. But just because it's sort of mysterious doesn't mean it isn't something or it isn't real, I guess I should say. And it doesn't mean it isn't a refuge. So in our sit tonight, let's experiment with that. We have our basic formula, you know, really establishing this alert, relaxed presence with the body, more specifically working with the sensations of the breath moving in the body, either at the nostrils or in the belly, cultivating more and more relaxation, more and more interest and clarity with that simple object. Some of you might be working with sound. Others may be working with the body more generally. But whatever the particular anchor is for your attention, that's where you keep shepherding the attention back with that ease, with that interest, that alertness. Then, of course, notice when that intention to be present in a continuous way with the breath, for example, gets interrupted. So we're establishing a natural ease and clarity with the primary object of meditation. And we're very interested in what interrupts that continuity of attention with the primary object. It's not a problem or a mistake when a distraction arises. It's an opportunity to be mindful. Oh, now this is being known. And if it's a relatively feeble distraction, then immediately return to the primary object, the breath, with interest, alertness, and relaxation, just allowing the breath to unfold naturally. It's a natural phenomenon. You don't need to control the breath. Of course, the breathing will happen on its own. And we really want to trust the breath to be a natural unfolding, not something that we're manipulating or controlling. So if it feels controlled, that's okay. Just don't intentionally control the breath, just like we don't intentionally control hearing, if that's your primary object or the sensations of the body. We just let the primary object the primary anchor, be a natural phenomenon, meaning that it's unfolding according to its own causes and conditions. And then alert to the distractions that interrupt. And I, as I said a moment ago, if they're weak, they're going to fall away or they're going to, we're just going to allow the distraction to fall into the background. Let the primary object of the meditation come back into the foreground of attention. But every once in a while or some days when we're more disturbed, Quite often, strong distractions will arise. And so the 
primary object is going to disappear into the background, or if not completely disappear, just shift into the background of attention. And the distraction is going to be, in a sense, right in front, in the foreground of attention. So we don't struggle. We just, in a sense, welcome it. Well, yeah, this is what's being known now. This is a moment of mindfulness. Mindfulness is knowing this. This is just a natural phenomenon. It's either a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, or a thought being known here. And it's like this. Can this be okay? Not that you have to use all those words in your mind, but it's just conveying the right attitude to take with obstacles or distractions. So distraction isn't even a good word. You know, it's not so much a distraction, it's just another object being known. It's just not the primary object of attention in our meditation. So we call that a distraction. And then when we observe it, we're practicing not being confused by it. So often the distractions are unpleasant. And our tendency with unpleasant experience is to get tight with aversion. So there we are, we're observing, opening to the distraction, maybe the unpleasant thought, for example, or the unpleasant sensation in our knee, and we're aware of it. And maybe maybe some aversion has come up, and then we're aware of that too. Oh, there's the throbbing sensations in the knee being known, and then I'm knowing, there's the knowing of the aversion. Oh, there's aversion being known. Throbbing, not liking. Throbbing is like this, so the actual sensation of pain it's like this, and then the tendency of the mind to want to push it away or get rid of it, that's called not liking or aversion, and that's like this. So you're just there observing them as objects of awareness. That is being known. Known by what? I don't know, but it's being known naturally, effortlessly. So we're, we're just allowing this awareness Mindfulness to do its job. Mindfulness knows what's predominant. Now, sometimes the um, distractions are so potent, so pleasant or unpleasant, that we can't remain mindful because we get seduced by the pleasantness of it or the unpleasantness of it, and we fall into a reactive pattern where the mind then is struggling. If it's pleasant, we're struggling to make it last. If it's unpleasant, we're struggling to get rid of it or to deny it or somehow, you know, get away from it. And so we see that. We see the struggling. And if we, there's no, if we've made our best attempt a number of times to remain composed and clear that struggling is being known, but keep getting sucked in and, in a sense, disappearing as the one who suffered, then it's good to do what we would call an antidote. So now, in a sense, we're abandoning. Mindfulness is telling us to abandon trying to be mindful of this object because it's too seductive. Like sometimes people have really painful things going on in their life, and they think, well, I should be mindful of it. But every time they turn their attention to those thoughts or those emotions, they're gone. And the person doesn't resurface for two hours later. You know, where they realize, oh my God, I've been thinking about that, obsessing about that for the last two hours. That didn't help. All I'm doing is reinforcing the attachment to those feelings and those that content. So it's better 
to find an object that your mind will pay attention to. Now, if you've been working with your breath long enough, the mind will eventually like it, and you can just use the breath. But other things you can do, you can open your eyes so you have a more sort of concrete present moment object like seeing. Okay, just sitting here, seeing, hearing. Doing walking meditation can be a good thing. I handed out instructions for walking meditation last year. Basically, giving yourself a, a more concrete anchor for your attention. Go do some work practice. Go clean the bathroom mindfully. You know, Those sorts of things where you can pour yourself into an activity to, in order to break the cycle of negative thinking, you know, thinking that's not really helpful. Now, as you develop your practice, there will be fewer and fewer storms that you won't be able to practice with. That's really the telltale sign of the practice developing is really difficult stuff can come up, but the mind knows how to include it as practice. Okay, now it's like this. And we may get sucked in, but then, like someone drowning, then we eventually come up, get a breath, and realize, oh, the mind's really caught. It's like this. <laughs> Back under for a while, thinking about it, worrying about, you know, reacting to the thoughts and images. And then there's a couple moments of, mer- uh, of mindfulness again. Oh, the mind is struggling. The mind is being seduced. It's like this. Can this be okay? And the key here is when we do come up, when we're sort of, still in the ballgame with the distraction, with the difficult emotion or difficult content. The key here is not to bring the mindfulness to the content, but to bring the mindfulness to the pain, the ouch. So if there's a particular painful memory, for example, it seems so appropriate to revisit the content, but it's much more useful in terms of mindfulness and healing to pay attention to the pain in the heart or the emotional pain. So there's a basic um, um, practice movement you can memorize from the content to the emotion to the pain of that emotion. So the easiest thing to notice initially when we're distracted is the thoughts about it. But in a way, the thoughts are a very inefficient defense system to keep us from feeling the pain which is exactly where we need to go. So you go from the thoughts and you abandon the thoughts, notice the emotions that are moving, that are related, associated with the thoughts, the content. And then from the emotion, like sadness, for example, or anger, or neediness, or loneliness, from the emotion, you tune right into the ouch of it. So if it's an unwholesome emotion, an afflictive emotion, it hurts. Where, how do you know it hurts? What is it in the mind-body experience right now that hurts? You put your attention right there. Does it have a location, a point of greatest intensity? You put your attention there. And what do you do? Practice being mindful. That means you relax, accept, and you're interested, willing to be intimate, willing to be undefended. So it's the same practice, except now we're working with something that's unpleasant. But mindfulness doesn't care. Mindfulness can be mindful of unpleasant things and pleasant things. It's just we don't believe it enough. We don't trust it enough. Mindfulness is like a mirror, right? I think I used that image maybe in one of the previous classes. A mirror doesn't care 
what happens in front of it. It just reflects it perfectly and effortlessly, right? Mindfulness, this inherent nature of the mind, it, in, it naturally and effortlessly will know objects. Whatever it is, mental object, physical object, but our thinking mind doesn't completely trust it yet. So that's what disrupts the practice, is we feel like panic and reactivity makes more sense than just being open and aware. We don't trust openness and awareness, but we will if we keep practicing, and it will be very transforming. So let's leave it here. We'll sit for half an hour, but let's take a minute or maybe a little bit more if you want to stand, stretch out your legs. Take as much time as you need to to feel comfortable. And then whenever you're ready, just start to settle back into a comfortable posture for the set. your body as you find your posture. And we can have a sense that we're doing something really beautiful with the body, creating a composed, stable, soft, sensitive posture. And the sense of sitting up right in the middle of this moment, this life. And I recommend as a beginning ritual for your meditation periods to do at least a couple slow, deep, full breaths. So you're fully filling the lungs and fully emptying the lungs in a relaxed, slow way for at least a couple breaths. Breathing through the nostrils if you can. And we're using this slow, deep breathing as a way to come back to the experience of the body. Maybe one more time at your own pace. Whenever you finish, you can let the breath continue on its own. And I'm going to ring the bell three times. We'll use the sound of the bell as a meditation object.
And before rushing to your main anchor, taking a couple minutes and practice sustaining this open, mindful presence with all the different objects that come and go. Willing to include whatever arises in the field of awareness. sustained present moment awareness continues, you'll notice sometimes it's a silent sustained present moment awareness free of thought. Other times the silent or the sustained present moment awareness includes thoughts. So just notice those moments when there are no thoughts moving in the mind. Silent, sustained, present moment awareness. of sustained, silent awareness, you can allow the attention to rest with the primary object, for example, the breath moving in the body. So we have a focused, (coughs) silent, sustained, present moment awareness. And then moments of distraction, knowing the distraction, And then again, coming back So tonight we'll continue through the sit in silence.
starting over can be quite simple. Come back to that sustained present moment awareness. Just aware of sounds and the sensations of sitting. Don't rush back to the particular anchor you're working with in a rushed way out of fear or judgment. Just be aware of the present moment and then there in the present moment notice the movement of the breath again. Simply receive those ordinary sensations of the breath coming and going allowing the distractions to be there in the background. Cultivate an interest in the primary object of meditation. willing to begin again and again. Remember the two qualities, the quality of relaxation, acceptance, and the quality of alertness, interest. Just for another couple minutes.
exploring the possibility of unconditional acceptance for the last few seconds. This is how it is now. Can this be okay? nice not to rush after a sitting period. Stretch out as you need to, releasing any painful sensations as best you can. So as we've done in the previous weeks, we'll take some time now as you probably already experienced, it's quite nice to hear from people what you've been learning in your practice, what's been difficult, what's been good, what insights, questions that you have about the instructions or about some aspect of the practice. And if you decide to speak up, it's nice also to say your name. So anybody can begin. Any thoughts? Yeah. <coughs> I do, and I, I think it's a really good question, it's a, and it's great insight, and I want to return to it in a moment, but first to your last point about, you know, when, when there is an insight, you know, one of the, in a sense, definitions of an insight, so the basic definition of insight is that the mind that knows is seeing something in a way it hasn't seen before, it's seen it more clearly or seen something that basically had been missing all along, and now it's seeing it. And and then one of the telltale signs of insight is that insight is integrated. It, in a way, it becomes as much who you are as anything is who you are. And so this insight to see that that thought, particular thoughts, when thought, leave an impression on the body, 
And the thoughts may go on to other thoughts, you know, the thinking may go on to something else, but that impression, that imprint in the body may remain, as you described. And uh, then, just as you described, and again, I really feel this is a, a deep insight, if, if you're mindful, you'll notice that having this imprint, this impression in the body, like holding stress in a particular way, um, is the cause for the mind to pick that content back up. It's like a, a visceral memory is, is like an ongoing trigger to the mind. Think that again. <laughs> Go back there. Go back to that content that made you feel like this. And this is, it, when you start unpacking this, seeing this more deeply, more clearly, more often, you'll see, my God, this is the engine of obsession. This is the engine of constant thinking leading to thinking because we have a thought on some level, you know, depending on the nature of that particular content, it leaves an impression in the body. And then that impression in the body, in a sense, triggers more of that same content, which makes an impression in the body, which triggers And now you see why we can just perpetually think, 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 in a way that isn't healthy, isn't helpful. So you don't need, you know, because the insight, it's like you see something, then you know that that's true. So, if, you know, if you, I always say, if you take a jet and fly around the world, you realize it's around. You know, it doesn't really matter. It's not like you're going to forget that. So when you see something about the nature of the mind, body, this process we call ourselves, it's not like you're going to forget it. I mean, the initial insight may be sort of, not that clear, but once you have it a few times, it just becomes who you are. You realize this dynamic between thought and body, how they're not really the same thing, but how they closely play on one another, you know, mirror one another like, like you described. Now, afterward, like bringing it up or after a sit, thinking about it can be quite helpful because as you're articulating it to yourself, you're probably also reflecting on that experience directly in that moment. So there, there is a role for thinking. That thinking isn't necessarily bad. Um, articulating, reflecting on what just happened, clarifying what just happened, and then checking it out. So now you've got sort of a model based on your experience, and then check out the model again directly in your experience. Is it in fact, does that model actually reflect what goes on in the mind and body? So then, the idea is we want our views, our concepts, to be in alignment with the way things are. And by definition, we call that Dhamma or Dharma, like the teachings of the Buddha or wise teachings or teachings or views that are in alignment with the way things actually are, as opposed to ignorant teachings. <laughs> you know, like we've got a lot of ideas culturally, you know, that we just get uh, received from sort of popular culture that tells us that things are this way. But, you know, a lot of what we're told is not true at all. This, is not, this has nothing to do with reality. You know, like our pop songs and all the lyrics in our pop songs about love. Well, is that actually your experience of love? <laughs> you know, I mean, some songs I think maybe are they're, because they're dharma, you know. The lyrics represent or somehow are coming out of the way things are. But not a lot of what, you know, stands for wisdom. Thanks for sharing that. That's great. Yeah. Hey, my name's Jay. Are, um, 
Are losses cumulative in, say, finding on vacation for a week and out of practice, or if you were to take a year off or something like that? Would be, how much, how detrimental is that to, to your progress? Yeah. Well, there's, there's really two things we're developing in practice. One we call samadhi, which is the mind uh, cultivating that continuity of mindfulness. And you know, when we're mindful, remember, when the mind's mindful, that means the mind's not confused by thought. It doesn't mean there's no thought in the mind, but the mind isn't confused by the content, by the concepts. And so it's a real retreating from our attachment and that retreating, that sort of letting go of our grip on our ideas about things, and just seeing objects as things that come and go, sounds come and go, thoughts come and go, sights come and go, we call that concentration or samadhi. That's pretty vulnerable, meaning when you, start, when you stop cultivating samadhi, it tends to go away. Now, if you've been doing it intensively for a couple of months on a retreat, then it may last for a while when you stop formally practicing it. You know, you're back in your daily life and you're not sitting, but you just have a sense of the mind being chilled out, being spacious and still in the midst of a lot of craziness. Or if you have a regular sitting practice every day and it's got some momentum, then that samadhi can sort of be there for a while. But generally, samadhi goes away if it's not practiced regularly. But wisdom, real insight, like when you see something deeply about the nature of the mind-body, the nature of things as they are, that's not so easily forgotten. You know, that your view of things, your understanding of what, how it is, what's going on, that, that in a sense is forever changed because you've seen something and we deeply trust that direct experience. And so... You may temporarily forget it. You may get caught in some storm, emotional storm, and revert back to old habits. But it has a certain integrity or resonance that it reestablishes itself. Wait a minute. You know, this is just a lot of fluff. And the mind kind of doesn't, uh, doesn't um, react or get lost like it might have in the past. So calm and concentration tends to be dependent on regular practice. The insight that can arise out of calm, when the mind is balanced, we see more deeply the nature of the mind, the nature of, of our habit mind. Those kind of insights tend not to um, be vulnerable to change as much. So, for example, one of the classic insights in Buddhist practice is, and in mindfulness, of course, is seen is the insight that thoughts are just thoughts. Now, for people who don't have this, haven't had this insight deeply, what does that mean? Thoughts are just thoughts. I already know that. But normally, our actual experience of thoughts is well, they're my thoughts. When I'm aware of a thought, that's my thought. But to see a thought as just like a, a passing, you know, like a if a bird sort of flew in front of us and then out of our perceptual range, you know, well, that's just a bird flying by. Well, thoughts are as ephemeral and impersonal as a sound flitting by, as a sight flitting by. And when we actually see that impersonal nature of thoughts, 
Like what, you know, we see a thought arise, but we don't see anybody making that thought arise. It just arises out of causes and conditions. Well, that changes forever our relationship to thoughts. Our tendency to take our thoughts personally is forever changed, at least a little bit. And then the more we have that insight, then our relationship to content, to thought, starts to change more and more deeply. So those kind of insights tend to be resistance, resistant to change. Temporary, temporarily, we can forget it, but generally, the insight reestablishes itself. Because seeing the truth of things has a resonance. You know, it's one thing to be told and to believe something because you've been told it's true. And we, have, we can have a certain, you know, um, addiction to that kind of belief. But when we see something directly in our experience, it doesn't really matter what other people think. Because we've seen it. You know, and more than anything, I mean, unless we're psychologically wounded, you know, we trust our direct experience. Human beings generally trust their direct experience, especially once you start cultivating mindfulness so you're relatively free of filters. You know, there's that more of that bare attention. Other thoughts or questions? Yeah. Okay. Um, I have noticed in my practice that there are sort of two states of mind that I think are sort of right, and I'm curious as to which You think are sort of? Are sort of right, like uh-huh. they're supposed to be complicated. Mm-hmm. One where sort of my perspective focuses down just on my breathing, and then like I can hear the droning of the, um, the heating system right now, and, I, and that goes away. Yeah. So all I have is in and out. Mm-hmm. And another where I'm sort of, I don't know, sort of feels more centered where I have other things thoughts or sounds or whatever sort of rotating around and I was curious as to which one mm-hmm. of the one I really should be cultivating or neither or both or mm-hmm. well there, there are two approaches and it's good it's good that you you distinguish them you know there's there's cultivating mindfulness with breath and cultivating mindfulness with depth because mindfulness is that alert relaxed and continuous attention with things as they are. And sometimes, you know, we can be microscopic in terms of the unfolding in a calm, clear way, the unfolding of things as they are. And sometimes we can be global in that continuity of mindful awareness. So both are both are very useful. Generally, the way our minds are conditioned, one will be easier than the other. But some people are, are kind of easy for both. And then you should just, generally speaking, we, we uh, go with our strength and play with our something that's not so strong. You know, So don't avoid the one that's not easy for you. But it's OK to make most of your practice with what's easy. So for people who are global, they often like mindfulness of sound or mindfulness of the whole body as their primary object. And people who, who have more of a talent for the sort of Focusing in, um, mindfulness of breathing is quite nice because as you get more calm, the breath becomes very subtle and refined. It, it basically disappears, and then the attention gets really refined and subtle, so the concentration can get very deep. The, the sort of one point in this tends to develop concentration faster than the wisdom, 
and the global tends to develop wisdom faster than the concentration. Now, you want both, and generally the concentration supports wisdom. I hope that makes sense. But as the more you play with it, the more you're kind of just understanding the difference between concentration and the development of wisdom and how they, they really relate to each other, but they're different. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Did you have a question? So in this, you're right, it's very similar to Kevin's question. And it's really important um, because when people hear about that global awareness, a lot of people will gravitate in that direction. But the, the trouble with global awareness is it doesn't look that different than just being distracted, you know, just letting our mind do whatever. And so we have to be careful about it. You know, like, are we actually, is the, is insight and calm developing or not? Are we seeing things we haven't seen before? Because we can have a lot of so-called insight about what we're thinking, but it's just on the idea, just on the level, rather, of reor the reorganization of ideas. I mean, so much of our art, writing, whatever kind of art, music, it's just a regurgitation of what's already there. It's not actually a different insight, like uh, the music, the writing, the artwork. It's not coming from a different place. It's just a clever remixing of what's already been there. And that's a lot of what we do when we're, you know, here we are in meditation. It's a relatively quiet, protected space, right? We're not, we don't get the phone going and the music going. And so it's a really good place to think about our life. And the thing is, it's good to think about our life. It's good to reflect about what's going on. But that's not meditation. That's taking a walk around the lake and, you know, feeling out what's going on and thinking about what you should do and who you should talk to. And so that kind of reflection, or some people do journaling, or some people talk to their friends, or some people have a good therapist, it's really important. And it's very easy for the meditation practice to gravitate toward thinking in a skillful way about our life, let alone thinking about our life in a not skillful way, which I'm not even bringing up. Because <laughs> that's obvious, you know, when we're just spinning and we're not, we're not sort of reorganizing in a life that makes kind of retelling ourselves a story about our life or some aspect of our life that makes our life make more sense and allows us to be more skillful in life. That's called good reflection. And there are many ways to do that, both 
talked about in Buddhism and also, of course, in Western psychology. I mean, there's a lot of skillful means for that kind of reflection. But we want to, in our minds, we want to very clearly distinguish that from our meditation. That's kind of nice about like having your own place for meditation. And you've got your particular posture, and you've got your place at home, and you've got your place in Minneapolis, like Common Ground or whatever meditation center you go to. Because then it, it's sort of a container for this very distinct practice. Because in this practice, we're not interested so much in the object. We're interested in the mind, the sort of empty, clear, relaxed mind that can let objects come and go, that can allow the breath to come and go, the subtle breath to come and go, the global sensations of the body and sounds to come and go. We're really interested in the mind, not what the mind is knowing. But we use what the mind knows to get some stability. So we have objects like the breath or sound or sensations of the body, and we practice cultivating that continuity of attention with that, just to create some stability, some basic concentration, some sense of like calm. But we're really interested in the mind itself. And if we're just on the level of thinking about things, or even more subtly, another place people can get stuck. And it's only stuck, it's not stuck in the sense that it's unskillful. It's stuck in the sense that you're not doing the deeper, uh, more transforming practice. Is People can start feeling subtle energy. And some of you probably are body workers or healers in one way or another. And, you know, this is what healers do. They move subtle energy. Well, the more your mind becomes calm and clear, this whole world of subtle energy, whether you want to call it prana or chi or life energy, it just starts to become apparent. And what else is apparent is all the different ways it's stuck, you know. And then just through intention, you can start to move energy. And it's endless. Now, this is really good to do. I mean, it's really good to get good healing body work. It's just like it's really good to have a good talk with a friend and reflect about your life or to have a good therapist or whatever, however you do it. But it's different than the practice, even though it really supports the practice. You know, like having processed difficult stuff in your life, difficult relationship stuff, job stuff, having you know, worked with your subtle energy in really good ways so your body is humming along and sort of not holding a lot of uh, painful knots and clogged chi, <laughs> it's great. Because then when you sit, that stuff will be less distracting. But to turn your sit into a time to move, release energy, or to figure out your life, reorganize your life and the stories of your life, it's sort of a wasted opportunity. So we want to not get caught in those traps. Of course, it's going to naturally happen. We'll be sitting, and all of a sudden, something about ourselves will just become ringingly clear. You know, like a story got reorganized. Oh, this is how I should understand this. This is what I should do with this person. Or we'll just feel like some way we've been holding the body, the energy of the body just releases. And we'll go, boy, that feels good. And we'll really get a pattern like how we tend to freeze up in a particular way when we're afraid and how we can recognize that and release it. So all these things will sort of come online, but we don't want um, to turn our meditation practice into that. Just let them happen. Those psychological insights, those energetic insights, when they happen, 
let them happen. But we're really interested in understanding the nature of the mind itself, or what is knowing itself. What is the what is awareness free of the object that's being known? What is that? What is the essential mind? And this all becomes more and more revealed as we learn to see objects for what they are. So when the mind no longer grips or gets attached or identified with sound or thought or sensation or subtle energy, when the mind is identified, it's trapped. But when the mind is equanimous with all the different objects coming and going, then it learns something about the mind. But it can only learn that when the mind is not attached to the objects of the present moment. So really, that's where the path goes. We're learning to be present without being attached to anything that is being known. Vividly knowing, right? Because that's what the mind does. It knows. Right there, intimate with sound and smell and touch and thought, all of that, but not trapped by it through the process of attachment or identification. So that's why we want to be careful with that kind. So you might, like, now that you value that more and more, find a time in your day to do that, to do that reflection. You know, like you could, uh, you know, whenever makes sense, to kind of reflect on what happened during the day and what's important. Other thoughts? We got a little bit more time. Questions that come up? Yeah. to this. There is an active part, or I guess you could say an assertive part to meditation and a receptive part of meditation. But the assertive part, like in the beginning, the assertive and the receptive need to be sort of gross because our mind is gross. So when we first sit down after a busy day, then the receptive part is like sitting still, you know, and just think, but that's kind of a gross strategy. And the assertive part is like picking the darn attention up and putting it back on the breath and picking it up and bringing it back to the breath and picking it up. So it's pretty gross. But as, as the, when, and it's not like 10 years from now, but like in those moments when the mind is more subtle, things are more subtle, then it's also important that the receptive and the assertive parts of the practice are also very subtle. So instead of like, I'm going to penetrate this experience, it's much more like just an authentic interest in letting that experience reveal itself. So it's really interest without the activity. It's still assertive because the interest wants to know. So that's the assertive part of it. And the receptivity 
is also very subtle. It's not like, uh, it's like a, just a profound allowing. You know, it's, it's not, it's not uh, like the, the receptive part has, has more like power to it. It's like a fearlessness of just allowing things to be the way they are. And the assertive part starts manifesting more softness, which is, you know, I'm really interested, but I'm so interested, I don't want to muck it up. So I'm just going to be interested, you know, and I'm going to let you reveal yourself in the space of awareness. So just keep that in mind. And, and you know, a lot, of, a lot of this we learn by making mistakes. We're over-assertive. We're more, the, sort of, the assertiveness is grosser than the quality of the mind in that moment. And we sort of mess it up. And just like you described, you sort of notice that. You know, your activity to want to see that deeply became the object that your, that your mindfulness revealed. I mean, that's what you said, which was great. Just in a, oh. And so when assertiveness gets seen, then it's probably greed. It's, it's greed has gotten into the interest. I want to know. I want to get done with this by really seeing it clearly. And that's greediness. You know, and then the mind that starts to stand up, mindfulness will see it. Oh, that's craving. Craving to want to see something clearly is not seeing it clearly. Because the craving, the desire to see it clearly gets in the way of seeing it clearly. And this is the great thing about mindfulness. As the whole system settles down, mindfulness gets very subtle. And mostly, uh, it actually actually ends up being where mostly we're just trusting mindfulness to do its job. There doesn't need to be a mark doing it at that point. It's mostly like hands-off. Mindfulness is just happening. Mindfulness is knowing this and that, and then knowing when it's out of balance and we're trying too hard or we're being too lazy. It's knowing that too. That's the amazing thing. But initially, it takes a lot of more gross energy, more sort of willful energy to sit down and stay still, to let go and of attention, to bring the attention back, to cultivate, you know, to really desire to be interested in the breath, to see it clearly. But then we can't get stuck with that sort of initial effort. We have to let it refine as the mind heart starts to settle down. Now next week we're going to talk about antidotes. I mentioned at the beginning that sometimes the mind and our life experience is just really intense, one of those big storms. And this is where the practice of loving kindness really comes in, where we bring in loving kindness as a way to create safety in the inevitable storms in our life. And it really supports hand in hand with, goes hand in hand with mindfulness. And in the end, you don't really understand mindfulness without understanding love. And we can't really understand love without having a deeper understanding of what simple presence is. So just as a preliminary exploration, just notice when you're feeling a lot of kindness or compassion or love, notice the quality of simple presence in that. And when you're feeling a real sense of simple presence, notice the flavor of love in that or kindness or gentleness in that. And we'll talk more about that next week. Now, we didn't get a chance to talk about walking practice, but I did hand that out last week. Please play with that. Put at least once a week, do a little formal walking practice. The instructions are right here if you didn't get them last week. I also have the 
handouts from the previous weeks if you missed any of the weeks and didn't get in, uh, any of the handouts. And always feel free to come up after the class if you have specific questions. And if you're willing to bring some of the folding chairs down, that would be great. Have a good week, everyone. See you next Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.